If you have a Bible, John 1.14 is our text. Some of you have it memorized, but um, there is an outline in your bulletin. There are more detailed printed notes at both exits and online, and uh, those have a lot of verses. I just don't have the time to go through, and so invite you to pick those up. Pray for the uh, website ministry. I just saw a report this morning. There were 14,000 unique visitors to the website last week, so about 2,000 a day are logging on to that and uh, downloading sermons and that kind of thing. So um, the Lord's word is going out. Uh, Just this one verse this morning, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I spent the summer of 1970, I was in seminary at the time, but had to earn some summer money. And I got a job at Movie Land Wax Museum as a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. <laughs> I, uh, they sent me to Hollywood and I got a real Charlie Chaplin costume. And then I watched movies and learned how to make up my face and imitate uh, that famous silent screen star. Every day I would go and just walk around, imitate Charlie with his walk, and um, pose with people for pictures, my pictures in thousands of homes in, in Japan and other places. And, uh, and uh, it was the most fun job that I ever had. I literally scared a young boy out of his shoes one day as I, I was frozen like a statue and then moved, and he leaped out and left his shoes. And, uh, he wouldn't take them back when I tried to give them to him, and he thought I was a ghost. But anyway, uh, the museum, for security, had a bunch of men employed so that no one would vandalize the place, and they would dress them up as Keystone Cops, if you've seen the early silent movies. And uh, there was one of them, a roly-poly man named Walter. And uh, one day, Walter, dressed again, picture as a Keystone Cop, and me, dressed as Charlie Chaplin, are sitting in the break room. And uh, out of the blue, Walter turns to me and said, Charlie, uh, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I'm not usually real quick on witnessing opportunities, but that seemed like a slow pitch right down the middle. So I said, uh, I said, Walter, I said, I've given my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And whatever I do, I want to do it serving him. His answer just jarred me because, first of all, he took the Lord's name in vain. And then he said, am I glad to hear that? And the dissonance of the two, I was sitting there kind of reeling as he then proceeded to tell me his religious odyssey. He started off as a young man with a Pentecostal group in Los Angeles He told me that he had a vision of what he called the Christ, in which he saw the beating heart of Jesus come out of Jesus' chest and beat right there in front of Walter. He went into a trance for several days. Uh, Then he started preaching on the streets in Los Angeles. 
I have forgotten now the order or how many different things he was into. It was more than I can remember, but they had included he had been in science of mind, he had been in uh, theosophy, Rosicrucianism, he was into some kind of a weird group that studied the silent years of Jesus, and I didn't want to ask how they discerned what Jesus did in those silent years. Um, He had been into Mormonism. And when I was talking to him, he was currently in the Self-Realization Fellowship of Yogi um, uh, Paramanda Yogahanda, which if you've driven up the California coast there north of San Diego, you've seen their enclave there against the beach. And he was actually speaking at one of their meetings in Laguna Beach and asked me to uh, come and attend. Thankfully, I was working and could not go. I had a good excuse but you, you think about a guy like that and you say, well, what was Walter's problem? I mean, here's a man who purportedly uh, began as a Christian. How could he end up so messed up in his beliefs? Well, two basic reasons. First of all, he accepted as the basis for truth his own subjective experience religiously rather than the written Word of God, the propositional truth that we read when we open the pages of the Bible. And then stemming from that wrong foundation, he developed faulty views, of course, of the person of Jesus Christ. Because without what we read in the Bible, the objective truth that the eyewitnesses, the apostles, uh, tell us about Jesus and who He was, you can't develop true views of who He is. I mean... You may think this, I may think that, you may have an experience of Jesus and His beating heart, I may have another experience, but whose view is true? So, we have to come back to the Word of God. I think it's safe to say that every cult, every major heresy down through church history has erred with regard to the person of Christ, either denying His full deity or denying his full humanity, or in some cases, mixed up about how his two natures uh, relate one to the other. Um, John MacArthur, in a sermon on this text, makes a profound observation. He says, It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. You can remember that line, perhaps, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door next Saturday. Uh, It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus. Now, saving faith, of course, is more than believing correct propositions about Jesus, but it's not less. You must put your faith in the Jesus who is revealed in the Scriptures or you are believing in the wrong Jesus. And in our text, John gives us the most Succinct statement, I think, in all the Bible of the Christmas story. There's no manger, no angels, uh, no shepherds, no wise men, no star from heaven. Just the facts. And the facts he gives us are that Jesus, the eternal Word, is God in human flesh. that That He is glorious as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, verse 14 connects us back with 
verse 1, the Word. And it's the last time John will use that designation of Jesus in the Gospel here. But the Word who was we saw in verse 1 was in the beginning with God. The Word who is God. Uh, the Word who created everything that has come into being. That Word, John says in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says of the incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection, and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join Himself to human nature forever, so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Leon Morris expressed it this way. He said, in one short, shattering expression... John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity that the very Word of God took flesh for man's salvation. So we're treading on uh, holy ground here, and I'm in way over my head as always, but more so this week than normal. And uh, so I identify with Paul's rhetorical question, who is adequate for these things? And I am not, so... We must depend on the Holy Spirit here and proceed reverently as we consider verse 14. The first point that John makes is that Jesus, the eternal Word, became flesh. He, did, he is, for the first time, really letting us know who the Word that he mentioned in verse 1 is. Actually, John isn't going to mention his name until verse 17, Jesus Christ Um, But he's affirming two truths here about Jesus Christ uh, that are essential for not only the Christian faith, but for your personal faith in him. The first is that as the eternal word, Jesus is fully God. Now, we saw that clearly back in verse 1, where John asserts that Jesus is eternal. He does not say in the beginning God created the word as the first and the greatest created being. But rather, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the tense of the verb there indicates when the beginning happened, when time started, Jesus already was in existence. And he has no beginning because he is one in essence with the Father and God, the uh, living triune God, is the only eternal being that exists. It's hard to get our finite minds around that. There was never a time when God was not. There is never a time when He will not be. He is. Now, of course, Satan hates the truth of the deity of Christ because it spells his doom, and so he has always attacked that doctrine from earliest days on. One of the most substantial attacks on the deity of Christ came in the early third or fourth century, by a man named Arius. Arius um, taught 
that the Word was the first and the greatest of all created beings. In fact, He created everything else, but He Himself was created. There was a time when the Word was not, was Arius's contention. Uh, he gained a large following. Uh, for a while, it almost looked like the teeter-totter would tip in his favor. But a man named Athanasius stood up to him and uh, confronted his teaching vigorously. He was, fine, or he was refuted initially at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and then also again at Constantinople in 381 and at Chalcedon in 451. And those latter two councils also clarified the relationship of the divine and human natures of Christ because there had developed some false teaching uh, regarding those issues. But even today, the attacks on the deity of Jesus Christ continue. There is one just a few blocks over on uh, North LaRue Street called the Unitarian Church. They deny the deity of Jesus. There's another one over by the library. It's called a liberal church. They deny the deity of Jesus. I'm reading J. Gresham Machen's Liberalism in Christianity right now. He wrote it in the 1920s, and it would apply directly to the liberals today. He clearly and forcefully contends it is not Christianity they believe. It is a a whole different religion. And he is absolutely right, because they deny the deity of Jesus. The modern cults, as I mentioned, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons deny the deity of Jesus. You cannot believe the New Testament and deny the deity of Jesus. Um, In the first place, Jesus himself claimed to be God. In John 5.23 in response to the Jews who said, you're making yourself out to be God, rather than saying, no, 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 you misunderstand, he confirms their um, accusation. He says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now, can you imagine a man making that claim? Would you all please honor me as much as you honor God the Father? I mean, that is utter blasphemy. Jesus made the claim. In John 8:58, again contending with the Jews, he made the statement, Before Abraham was born, I am. And the Jews would have recognized I am as going back to Exodus 3:14 where Moses said, God, show me your name. Tell me your name. And God said, tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am. And it's a play on the Hebrew. Yahweh is taken from Hayah, the Hebrew word for I am. So uh, Jesus was asserting to be eternal God. Again, in John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. John 14:9 he told Philip, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Beyond Jesus' claim to be God, Scripture directly states that Jesus is God, and I don't have time to look up all the references. Verse 1 of our text is one of them. I mentioned also Thomas proclaiming Jesus to be God. 
But I think the clearest one is Hebrews 1.8, where the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 45.6 to Jesus. He says, But of the Son, He, God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So, he, God the Father is proclaiming God the Son to be God, and the author of Hebrews makes that clear. In addition, there are many titles that apply only to God that are applied to Jesus. Lord is one of them. That is um, how God is referred to in the Old Testament as Yahweh, Lord. Uh, in John 1, uh, John the Baptist says that he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. Well, who's he making straight the way for? Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of Isaiah 40 of the Old Testament. Uh, Paul calls Jesus the Lord of glory. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You have to understand, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And then just a few verses later, verse 17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And in case you didn't make the connection, he reaffirms it in Revelation 22:13, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God said in chapter 1, he's the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first, Jesus says, and the last, the beginning and the end. In addition, Jesus displayed many of the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, God has attributes that are called communicable, meaning we can share them to an extent, such as His love, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His patience, and so on. But then there are the attributes of God that we cannot share because we are not God. Jesus has those. <clears throat> he is eternal. We see in verse 1. He is omnipresent. When he gives the Great Commission, he tells the disciples, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. Uh, he is omnipotent. He is able to transform our mortal bodies into immortal bodies, Paul says. Uh, he is uh, immutable, meaning he will never change. He is glorious. We see that here in verse 14. Uh, he is sovereign. So, those are all attributes of God that we cannot uh, enter into. Paul put it this way in Colossians 2.9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Uh, in addition, Jesus did works that only God can do. Uh, he created all that is. We see up in verse 3 of our text, verse 10 also. He raised the dead. Uh, he overpowers Satan and all of the forces of evil, which are too strong for any man. Uh, he judges all people, as we saw in John 5, something only God can do. He forgives sins. When he forgave the paralytic sins, the Pharisees muttered, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Precisely. That's the point. Uh, Jesus can forgive sins because he is God. And then he receives worship. And every time in the New Testament somebody bows in worship before Jesus, he does not do as the angels do. Remember when people bow before the angels, they always say, Get up! Get up! I, I'm not God! 
you know, they disavow that worship, but Jesus always accepts it and affirms it. So you just can't believe the record of the New Testament and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Not only, though, is the Word fully God, but the Word, the eternal Word, when He took on flesh, became fully human. And John could have said, uh, the Word became man. There's a Greek word for that. Or he could have said, the Word took on a human body. There's another word for that. But he uses the word flesh, I think, to kind of jar us. And probably John was trying to refute another early church heresy that really arose in the end of the first century called docetism. And it comes from a Greek word, dokao, that means to seem. And the docetists said, Jesus wasn't really human. He just seemed to be human. You know, he really was God. He just kind of looked like a man, but he wasn't a true man. And John here says, no, uh, Jesus took up on himself full human nature except for sin. From the miraculous moment when the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, forever after that, he is God in human flesh. God and man forever in one person. Now, when he became uh, flesh, as John says, John doesn't mean he ceased to be what he was, God, and now he's in a new mode. Uh, Rather, to his eternal deity, he added perfect humanity, and he temporarily laid aside the use of some of his divine attributes, um, I first came on this comment when I was reading Alfred Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he pointed out, whenever in the Gospels you see the deity of Jesus, look for his humanity or vice versa. For example, when Jesus is born in a lowly manger, the angels proclaim his glory. And the heavens shine with the glory of God. Um, When Jesus is about to say, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man, four days in the tomb, comes forth, you know what Jesus does? He says, where have you laid him? Very human question. Where's he at? Okay, yeah, there. Lazarus, come forth. Humanity, deity, right together. Look for it as you read the Gospels and you'll see it. But um, Jesus hid his glory. It's shown in a few places, especially to those with eyes to see it. Uh, In chapter 2, we'll see it. But um, he he hid his glory, uh, and yet he never ceased to be God. Uh, He added complete humanity, in other words, to his eternal deity. And uh, his humanity was not like Adam before the fall. Because Jesus was subject to hunger and thirst and weakness, tiredness, uh, pain, suffering, and, of course, death, and yet without sin. Now, again, Satan hates the humanity of Jesus because it spells his doom because Jesus had to be fully man to qualify to be our Savior. Only a man could die in the place of people. And so Jesus, as man, is the Savior of lost people. And there have been mixed-up views 
that still in some form or another are with us from time to time. There was a group in early church history called the Apollinarians. And while they affirmed both the deity and the humanity of Jesus, they were mixed up in that they said Jesus didn't take on a real human soul. Rather, the Logos took over in Jesus. So he had a divine soul, but not a human soul. Uh, Then there was another group called the Nestorians, and uh, they spread the gospel actually into uh, Persia and even into um, China, or spread their version of it, I should say, there. And they, they held Christ to be both God and man, but they conceived of him as two persons. So they divided the unity of the one person of Jesus. And then there was another group called the Eutychians, And in case you're wondering about all these names, they're named after people. So if you're choosing a name for your son, you might want to avoid those names because they're all heretics, okay? But um, in case you were tempted, you know, Eutychius, yeah, what a different name. Um, But the Eutychians uh, held that he is one person, but then they said that his two natures kind of blended to produce a third substance, a new uh, God-man's substance, and uh, so he only had one nature. His humanity was absorbed into his deity. And that error exists today among the Egyptian Coptic Church and the Ethiopian Coptic Church. It's called monophysitism, or the monophysites. One nature is the meaning of that word in Greek. And uh, some of the groups, the Christian groups in Syria hold to it. It's a little closer to home, though, because a few years ago, there was a group right here in town that called themselves the Church in Flagstaff. And they were an offshoot of the church in Los Angeles, which was founded by a man named Witness Lee, who came over to L.A. in 1962. And he was a co-worker with Watchman Nee in China before Nee went to prison. And Witness Lee used the analogy to describe Jesus of tea water. He said, you have water, and you have a tea bag, and you mix them, and you get a new substance, tea water. And Jesus then is kind of a hybrid God-man. Neither God, neither man. He's a God-man. And I have spent hours debating uh, some of those people on their false view of Jesus Christ, but All these errors just kind of keep coming around. Satan makes sure of that. In 451, the Council of Chalcedon produced a statement, and I would encourage you, go online, you can read it. Just type in the Council of Chalcedon, and I think it's called the Symbol of Chalcedon. I was going to read it for you, but it's kind of long. Um, But it cleared up all of these matters. Here's how you can sum it up, though, in a sentence. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person forever without confusion of his two natures. And there is a mystery there that we cannot totally comprehend of how do the two natures of Christ interact. I can't explain that, but you have to accept the truth of Scripture. The Word became flesh. The second point John makes is that Jesus, the eternal Word, dwelt among us. John could have said the eternal Word lived among us. There is a Greek word for that. But he takes another word, and it literally would be translated, the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. 
Or you could translate it, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the same Greek word that's used in the uh, Greek Old Testament to describe the tabernacle, where God dwelled with His people there in the wilderness. Now, John does not mean by the term, again, that Jesus' humanity was temporary. Rather, His stay on earth was temporary. Um, But I think when John says he tabernacled among us and then he adds, and we saw his glory, he wants us to draw some lines back to the Old Testament. And you think about the tabernacle. It was the place where the living God dwelled with his people in their midst. Uh, He manifests his glory there. And so Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us, where if we have eyes to see, we will behold His glory as He dwells among us. Uh, just as the tabernacle was at the center of the Jewish camp, they had the 12 tribes all around, the tabernacle in the middle, so Jesus should be in the center of the church. And all that we say, all that we do should be Christ-centered. Just as the sacrifices and the worship were offered at the tabernacle, So Christ is our complete and final sacrifice and we bring Him worship and we have access to God through Him and we give to Him the praise of lips that are um, thankful for His sacrifice for us. You think through the tabernacle and every aspect of it spoke of Christ. Outside in the courtyard around the tabernacle, there was the bronze altar where sacrifices were offered, and the bronze laver where the priest would cleanse the sacrifice and cleanse themselves. And of course, bronze is a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament, and so it's a picture of Jesus who is the one who took the judgment of God for us so that we now can be cleansed and right with God. You move inside to the inner court of the, um, or the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, and there was there the uh, table of showbread, which um, they put fresh bread out every day, a picture of Jesus, the bread of, the, of life for us, sustaining us. There was the golden lampstand, and that, of course, pictures Christ, the one who illumines the things of God for his people. Uh, there's the altar of incense, where That incense was a picture of prayer, and Jesus is offering prayer, intercession for us, His people. And then you would move beyond the veil, and remember the veil was split at the death of Jesus. In Matthew it tells us that, so that now we have access into the very Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year. He would always go in there with a rope around his leg in case he died. They could drag him out without somebody else dying going in there. And he would go in, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was made of wood covered with gold, speaking of the two natures of Christ, His humanity and His deity. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat, where the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. When you opened the ark inside of it, there were three things. Uh, There was the tablets of the law that Moses had received on Mount Sinai, speaking of Jesus who perfectly kept the law of God and Christ as we saw in Romans 10.4 
is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. There was also a jar or a cup of uh, manna from the Old Testament experience, picturing Christ as the one who sustains his people daily as we feed on him. And then the third thing that was in there was the rod of Aaron that budded. And again, I think that speaks of a very frequent picture of Messiah in the Old Testament. It calls him the branch. Well, branches are dead. They've been cut off of trees, yes, but this branch budded. It's alive. And so it's a picture again of Jesus who is alive forevermore and gives life to dead sinners who trust in him. So the whole point is that uh, Jesus, our tabernacle, dwelt among us. He is God with us. And uh, his, God's glory is seen there. And that's the third thing that John shows. First, Jesus is the eternal word who became flesh. Second, Jesus is the eternal word who dwelt among us. And thirdly, he says, the apostles saw the glory of the word who became flesh. God's glory is the sum of all his attributes and perfections. And in the Old Testament, his glory is often manifest as a bright, overpowering, shining light. When the glory of God filled the tabernacle, I think everybody shielded their eyes. It was like looking at the sun, the brightness of the glory. John says, we saw his glory. The word saw should be beheld, or it's, it's the word we get our word theater from it. It means more than a passing glance. We, we watched it like you would watch a play at a theater. Uh, we saw his glory. What was he referring to? I think in part, now I differ with some commentators here who say it's not the transfiguration. I beg to differ. If you had an experience like John had, where you with Peter and James went on the mountain and you saw Jesus transfigured so that his countenance became as bright as the sun and his garments shone like, you know, bright white and you heard a voice thunder from heaven, this is my beloved son, you would never forget it when you said, I see his glory, I saw his glory. And even though John doesn't mention the transfiguration in his gospel, I think he had to have that partially in mind here. But beyond that, he also is thinking of some other things. Because in chapter 2, he, after Jesus turns the water into wine, John reports in chapter 2, verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, not everybody saw it. There were a lot of people that said, hey, this is great wine. And they missed the glory. They didn't see Jesus' glory. Same thing in chapter 11. Before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says in verse 4, This sickness is not to end in death, but it's for the glory of God, notice, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And so when Jesus spoke and Lazarus, the dead man, came forth, Jesus was glorified. Did everyone fall down and worship him? No, some of them went off, reported it to the Pharisees, and they upped their efforts to kill the Lord of glory, the, the one who is the resurrection and the life. They didn't see it. But in John, 
he also shows that Jesus' glory was supremely manifest at the cross. In John 13:31, Judas has just left the upper room to go betray Jesus. And Jesus says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Because the cross is the supreme display of the attributes of God. You see, the cross upholds the holiness of God, the justice of God. God cannot forgive sin unless the penalty is paid. Jesus became sin for us on the cross. The cross also displays, like nothing else, the love of God. That Jesus, the eternal God, would go to the cross and bear my sin and your sin and offer us salvation as a free gift to all who will simply receive it and believe there's no greater love in all the world. And so John wants us to see that at the cross, we see his glory. He also um, elaborates on the glory here in our verse with two other phrases. He says, first of all, the glory of the word is that Jesus uh, was the only son of the Father. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Now, the term only begotten, as the New American Standard translates it here, Um, It's part of the historic creeds, but it it may generate some confusion because when we speak of someone who is begotten, we think of a point in time at which they were begotten. But the Nicene Creed clarifies begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And uh, so sometimes the theologians will say Jesus is eternally begotten. But to our minds, that seems like an oxymoron. You know, how can you be begotten and be eternal? Uh, And so perhaps it's better, and most modern scholars and um, the ESV, I think, translation and maybe the NIV, they don't translate it as begetting because that's not the main point of that Greek word, monogenes. It points rather to his uniqueness. And so it will translate something like the only son of the father. It's used in Luke 8 when the, Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son. It says she, he was her only son. In uh, Luke chapter uh, uh, 7, or I mean that's Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain. Luke 8 is Jairus' daughter and it says she was his only daughter. That died, and then Jesus raised her. In Luke 9, it talks about a man who was the only son of his father who was demon-possessed, and Jesus cast the demon out. Uh, an interesting use of it is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son. Now, he wasn't his only son. He had Ishmael and had some other sons through Keturah. But Isaac was his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son, because he was the son of the promise given to Abraham and Sarah when they could no longer conceive children. And so what John wants us to see, and John, by the way, is the only New Testament author that uses this term, he wants us to see that Jesus is unique. He is, in a unique sense, the only son of God. Now, through the new birth, you and I become sons and daughters of God. We become sons of God but not like Jesus. 
Jesus is the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father. There is never a time when Jesus was not the Son of God, and so He is always the Son in relation to God, who is the Father. And uh, if you're scratching your head and saying, well, how can you talk about an eternal Son? Uh, Remember the comment of Augustine, who said, show me and explain to me an eternal Father, and I will show you and explain to you an eternal son. These are concepts that kind of go outside our finite ability to reason. Now, sadly, there are many who purport to be evangelicals who are missionaries to the Muslims, and they are perverting this truth about the father and the son. Uh, They have... um, produced and are endorsing and distributing translations of the New Testament for Muslims that change father and son to other terms. Because to the Muslim, they think of Jesus as the Son of God, and they think we believe that God the Father had sexual relations with Mary and produced Jesus. Now, that is not what we believe. But in order to remove that stumbling block, these missionaries have changed those terms. Um, Muslim believers, by the way, are outraged that they would do this. But it's kind of a sleight of hand thing. And what it's resulting in, they're saying, is called the insider movement. And it's why, by the way, that the Irvines did not go with Wycliffe Bible translators because they are uh, doing this in the Middle East, along with um, Frontier's mission. But um, it's really producing a new religion that has been called Chrislam. It's a blending of Islam and Christianity. And they are telling these supposed converts, you can stay in the mosque, you can still say the, the creed of Uh, There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. You can still pray the five prayers every day, go to the mosque, celebrate all the Muslim feasts, but you're a Christian. But they deny the Father and the Son, and it's a sad, sad thing. Um, The Bible is clear. God is the eternal Father. Jesus is the eternal Son. The Holy Spirit is eternally God. Three persons, one God forever. And you can't tamper with that message to make it less offensive. That is the the revelation of Scripture. Secondly, John says, the glory of the Word was full of grace and truth. And that is wonderful news for us. Full of grace and truth. And I'll say more on this next week as we look at verses 15 through 18. But John, I think, is referring back to Exodus 33 and 34. And that's a great section. You might want to go home and read it over again if you, or read it for the first time if you never have. Moses gets bold. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, can't do it. Can't do it. If I showed you my glory you'd be incinerated. It'd be like, God, take me to the sun. I want to see the sun. Yeah, right. You'll get burned up. You can't do it. You can't even look at it or you'll go blind. 
So here's what God says. It's an interesting passage. He says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand and I'll pass by and I'll take my hand off and you'll see my back, but you can't see my face and live. And so God does it. And as he does it, he proclaims the name of the Lord to Moses in Exodus 34, 7. Here's what it says. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, the Lord, that's what the Lord means, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious. Isn't that good news? First word out of God's mouth, and this is the first real self-revelation of God in Scripture. First word, compassionate. (laughs) I need that. I need all the compassion from God I can get. And gracious. Oh, thank God. He's gracious. Slow to anger. Oh, wonderful. Abounding. And here's our two words. In chesed and hemet. Loving kindness and truth. Grace and truth. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands? Here's how. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Here comes the truth. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So in that profound revelation of God to Moses, we hear of God's grace and truth. He's abounding in grace, loving kindness. Hesed is the Old Testament word for grace. But he is true to his holiness. He punishes the guilty who don't repent. Now here's the good thing. Jesus, the Son of God, is full of grace and truth. His truth means, and you'll see it all through John, that he warns of God's judgment if sinners don't repent. But his grace means he offers mercy and compassion to sinners. We'll see it in chapter 4 with the woman in the well who was an immoral woman at the well, who was an immoral woman. Now, where do God's grace and truth reach their apex? At the cross. At the cross. Because there God turns His back on the Son who bears our sin so that He can be the substitute for sinners. And... By believing in the truth about Jesus, you can experience God's grace and forgiveness as a free gift, no matter how sinful your past. And there is no better message in all of the world than that. If you come as a sinner to the cross, there is grace. And we see it when Jesus promised in John 6.37, Whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. Jesus welcomes every sinner who comes to Him and forgives their sin based on His shed blood on the cross. How can you know you can trust Him? Because He's not only full of grace, He's full of truth as well. If you don't own J.C. Ryle's uh, expository thoughts on the Gospels, you, you are missing something good. I did, did discover this week, it's online. You don't even have to buy it. You can read it online. Um, 
He was an Anglican pastor, 19th century. I really love Ryle's writing. And he draws several practical lessons from John 1.14. He points out that the constant undivided union of these two perfect natures in Jesus uh, gives infinite value to his mediation for sinners. He expounds on that. I don't have time to report what he says. It gives infinite value, he says, to his imputed righteousness for us. It gives infinite value to his atoning blood and also infinite value to his resurrection. And then, to quote him, he adds this. Did the Word become flesh? Then he is one who can be touched with the feeling of his people's infirmities because he has suffered himself being tempted. He is almighty because he is God, and yet he can sympathize with us because he is man. He asked, did the Word become flesh? then He can supply us with a perfect pattern and example for our daily life. Having dwelt among us as a man, we know that the true standard of holiness is to walk even as He walked. He is a perfect pattern because He is God, but He's also a pattern exactly suited to our needs because He is man. Finally, did the Word become flesh? then let us see in our mortal bodies a real true dignity and not defile them by sin. Vile and weak as our body may seem, it is a body which the eternal Son of God was not ashamed to take upon Himself and to take up to heaven. And that simple fact is a pledge that He will raise our bodies at the last day and glorify them together with His own. What a marvelous truth. The Word became flesh. Charles Wesley, in his great Christmas carol, put it this way, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Let's pray. Dear Father, give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus, eternal God in human flesh, dwelt among us. What a wonder. And help us, Lord, to live each day in light of the fact that Jesus died, He was buried, He was raised on the third day, He ascended bodily into heaven, and He is coming again bodily in the clouds of glory with great power to redeem us and give us eternal resurrection bodies as well. What a wonderful, wonderful truth this is, and yet beyond our comprehension, So, illumine us and help us to live daily in light of it. If there's any here, Lord, who have never repented of their sin and come to the cross needy and laid hold of Jesus as their substitute, I pray that you would do that in their hearts this morning. Draw them to the glory of Christ, to His grace, to His truth that they might believe in Him for everlasting life. We pray in His name. Amen.